Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Tennis Worthy Podcast brought to you by the International Tennis Hall of Fame. I'm Brett Haber, and we have an inspirational guest for you today. That's not to imply that Jim Courier and Ken Rosewall and Patrick Rafter weren't inspirational. They were the subjects of our first three podcasts of 2024, and please do check them out if you miss them. But our guest in this podcast had to battle against much more than the opponent on the other side of the net. I never grew up envisioning myself playing the Paralympic Games because it wasn't on television. It wasn't, there was no exposure for disability sports. Sitting and play sports and play the highest level of sports is very stressful for your body and your lower back. Worrying about not losing is not the same as worrying or fighting for a win. Esther Vergeer has been paralyzed from the waist down since the age of eight. And yet she has dealt with both the need to build a life as a disabled person and the desire to beat every opponent she ever faced as a wheelchair tennis player. She compiled a phenomenal record at every level of wheelchair tennis while remaining a genuinely humble, down-to-earth person. You might almost describe her as the Roger Federer of wheelchair tennis, albeit with a better winning percentage than Roger. Listen for yourself to this remarkable Dutch woman as she spoke on her first visit to the Hall of Fame in Newport, Rhode Island with Blair Henley. Well, Esther Vergeer, thank you so much for joining us on the Tennis Worthy Podcast. We have so much to discuss. I know you just got into Newport last night, but I want to start with the question we ask many of our guests, and that is, what is it that you think makes you a Hall of Famer? <laughs> um, well, that's a difficult question in, in the sense that it's maybe weird to say about yourself, but right. I think that my... Um, contribution to tennis or wheelchair tennis has been um, in in the the years that I've been playing I contributed a little bit about you know the development of wheelchair tennis and it's in the way we play wheelchair tennis nowadays in the way we see wheelchair tennis nowadays um, if it comes to coverage and and the awareness of disability sports maybe in general and also the development of equipment for example so yeah I've added little bits of those things in in the development of wheelchair tennis I, I think you you've used the word a little bit a couple of times I think maybe <laughs> it's a little more than a little bit but absolutely and we're going to talk a little bit more about that but I'd love to start chronologically and, and go back to the beginning of your tennis career. So you had surgery on your spinal cord at age eight and that left you paralyzed from the waist down. Started playing tennis from what I understand at about 12 years old. Correct. How old were you when you thought to yourself, okay, I maybe have a particular talent in this sport? Well, I guess around the age of 14, when I was playing some tournaments in the Netherlands and I was uh, watching other good wheelchair tennis players from the Netherlands, um, a coach came up to me and he saw me playing and he said, well, maybe uh, you have some, or maybe you have some talent, you have good hand-eye coordination. You're a very energetic little girl who wants to learn. Um, So these are all ingredients where you can maybe improve your game. Uh, Would you like to come train with me? And I think that was the first time someone gave me a compliment. So in the years before, I was only 
confused by me having a disability. I was uh, faced with all the facts that a lot of things were more difficult or I was slower than the rest of my friends. Or So this was the first time somebody gave me a compliment in how good I was at something and that I could improve. And I think that was the starting point for me to start believing in myself that I really could become better and uh, not even world number one. I wasn't dreaming about Paralympic Games yet, but just a compliment that I, you know, could improve in something. And I think that was a start for me. That's huge for a kid that age to be complimented and to have that positive reinforcement. How much did that psychology, maybe even more so for you, given your story, how much did that play into your drive to eventually be this incredible record-breaking champion? Yeah, it, it's been an important aspect of, I think, the the fact that you want to improve yourself every, every single day. The fact that he gave me that compliment that day on tennis was making me starting to believe in myself again as a little girl, as, you know, I was okay to be there. I was okay to be part of school, um, that, I, that it was okay to be part of um, a sporting team at my school. Um, and I think that's important that you tell yourself every single day that you're part of society, that you're part of who you want to be part of and that you can be whatever you want to be. And if this is a girl that, you know, is going to be independent, that's when I started to believe that I could be independent, not uh, relying on my parents all the time or that I was able to live the life that I wanted to live uh, just like anyone, anyone else. Um, going to study whatever I want, uh, become whatever I want. And I think that is, that is important as a kid growing up. In those junior years, was there anything that made you doubt your pursuit in tennis? Were there any setbacks that made you doubt your ability or what was possible for you? Um, well, in the beginning, I wasn't even dreaming about Paralympic Games because also because I, I, never, I never grew up envisioning myself playing the Paralympic Games because it wasn't on television. It wasn't showed. It wasn't aired. It wasn't, um, there was no exposure for disability sports. And so I was doubting myself in a maybe more regular way or normal way that sometimes during training sessions, I just didn't have my day. And I was like, well, I should give it up because it's not going to work. And I mean, I have fun, but it's not going to go anywhere. Or maybe I could, I was playing basketball at the time. Maybe I should, you know, uh, just uh, play basketball and stop playing tennis. Or after I lost uh, um, matches that I was just didn't believe in myself anymore. Um, but then at the end, um, in, in a couple of years, I started to win a couple of tournaments. And people were telling me all the time that I had talent and I could be, you know, maybe potentially a, a Paralympian. Or, um, and then I started to get more interested in those types of, you know, uh, goals to set myself. And, um, um, and I realized that whenever I set a goal like that or I told myself to have a goal like that, um, then all of a sudden you want to work harder. Um, then all of a sudden you see that you need more than just a tennis training, but you see that you need more experts around you and you need more expertise. And that's the fun part of developing yourself as an athlete. Um, 
to see that you can add all those little things to become a better athlete. So it sounds like you had the the physical gifts, the hand-eye, the ability to strike the ball well. That that perhaps maybe came more naturally to you than it came to others. Were there aspects of your mental game, though, maybe when you talked to your parents about when you were little, that, that there were hints that you were perhaps more driven, more focused, more competitive than the average child? Mm, yeah, I was a competitive girl. Um, I grew up uh, having an older brother, and he was teasing me all the time and I had to fight you know my 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 place in our family and he was uh, and also when I was in we were just talking about it actually uh, but he was teasing me all the time when I just <laughs> became paralyzed and was in a wheelchair he was teasing me and he would run up the stairs and uh, he would just uh, laugh at me but like wow. like brothers yeah. and sisters oh, do sure I have two brothers uh, yeah <laughs> so and and that's that's good and I think that's what you know formed me or shaped me um, in a way that I I wasn't scared of of, of um, criticism from others. Yeah, or, yeah, yeah. Because I was used to that, and mm-hmm. I think that shaped me and 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 um, made me that I wanted to fight and never give up. And so I could use that in in my my sporting career as well. I love that. So yeah. you, did you thank your brother? Uh, uh, <laughs> maybe I should do that again. Or, <laughs> there you go. Yeah. You can save that for your Hall yeah. of Fame speech. <laughs> I want to read off some numbers. So you, of course, know these, but 44 major titles, 169 titles in all, seven Paralympic gold medals from March 2001 until when you retired in 2013. You only lost one singles match. Absolutely incredible numbers. And of course, you finished your career on a 470 match winning streak. I think when so many of us think of sports and how they build character, we think of how they can teach us to handle losses. You didn't have many of those, but you have spoken so many times about how tennis built your character. Can you tell us how that was built for you, given your incredible success? Uh, yeah, and in a way, a, a lot of people say that you know, from losses you will you will get stronger mentally and, and physically, and you will learn, and it, it'll teach you a lot of stuff. But I think winning games, um, winning matches, will you know teaches you a lot as well. Sure. And I, I yeah, um, I also had setbacks, of course, in in injuries or in training sessions, and I had my losses in doubles. Um, so I, I know what it's like, and I also see that if you want to become the best, you have to work hard. If you want to stay the best, you have to work hard. And if you don't, well, maybe it's weird that I'm going to say it, but if you don't care about winning or losing, you have to work hard as well. And that's what I did, I think. So I had a streak up until, I don't know, match 300. I don't know the year. I don't know the exact number. <laughs> it's I'm not hard a to keep track once the numbers get into the hundreds. <laughs> um, but then eventually I was more worried about losing and losing the streak. And that's when I realized that I don't like playing tennis that way. And so that's when I started to invest more in mental training because I hated that feeling. And that was not the reason why I, was, I started playing tennis because um, worrying about not losing is not the same as worrying or fighting for a win. And uh, so I wanted to get rid of that, rid of that feeling. So I invested more in, in mental training. And I think I became mentally very stable. And that's also why I could continue that streak because I never was, there was no real highs or lows or in my mental state. 
and I was happy when I won and, and I could enjoy it, uh, but it never took me off guard to any direction. And also during matches, I wasn't really easily to um, disconnect from my path, so to speak. But that's all because I, I invested a lot of time in those mental um, training sessions and, and, you know, the breathing exercises and preparation and imagination or visualization and all those things. And I think that's also the part that I loved about tennis because it's, it, there's so many aspects in this game and there's so many aspects that you can improve yourself on um, and focus on and develop. And especially maybe in wheelchair tennis where when I started, it was a sport that just was, that just begun. And now, of course, we have evolved over the years. Um, but that, that, that means that you can, you can make big steps and um, um, make sure that you continue the, to grow as a person and as an athlete and as a sport and all those aspects of growing. Um, I loved putting my energy in that. Um, and especially when you see yourself grow and, and become a stronger person. And actually, I love the fact that, and I guess, I never asked my opponents, but I can imagine a little bit that, you know, the, the opponents that I played, whenever they saw that they were, you know, facing me in the draw, that I already had like a three love uh, mm -hmm. um, uh, advance on them. Um, and yeah, that's, the Novak Djokovic, the Roger Federer, the yeah, Rafa Nadal yeah. effect. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Um, and that played part of it as well. Could throw Serena Williams in there yeah. as well. It's just those those legendary yeah. figures in our sport. And I'm sure at the time you don't necessarily maybe want to think of yourself that way, but absolutely it has a psychological effect. And because you mentioned the mental training, you were ahead of your time. You retired in, in 2013. Yeah. And really it wasn't until maybe the past decade where players started to really talk openly yeah. about employing sports psychologists. Why did you decide to do that? Did you have somebody on staff? What was that arrangement for you? I guess the I was always looking for a next or, or different aspect of the game that I could improve because that would keep me motivated. Um, and so maybe yeah, I, was, I was already one of the fastest on court. I had good mobility. I was also one of the few women's athletes that could hit the ball that hard. So all those aspects I already had developed. And I just realized that brain and body is connected in a way that we do not understand as a human being yet or not fully. But I was aware that it has a connection because whenever I'm nervous, something happens with my arm or something happens with my pushing uh, the chair. And I didn't want that, that to happen anymore. So I, yeah, I knew that it had to do with my my brain and my sure. mental uh, state. So that's, I was just, I was just curious. I was just curious how that would work in general and how that would work for me. Can you give us an example of whether it was a breathing technique or something that you would visualize before a match or a routine that you had that helped you avoid your arm feeling a little funny or not being able to push the way that you wanted to? Is there anything that comes to mind when you think back? Well, there's one, well, of course, there's a, there's a lot of things, and I think the breathing exercise is a totally different aspect than uh, visualization, mm -hmm. for example. What I tell 
you know, the next generation athletes is to sometimes just keep it simple because tennis is already a complicated sport. Or, That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. And then, uh, so every t- I was, so I was um, unbeaten for so long and there was every, t- in every match, there was this moment that I would become nervous. So it, it wouldn't matter if I was up uh, six, two, four, two. There would be a time within a match that I would become nervous. And that's, of course, an emotion that mm-hmm. comes up. And, um, and there was a time that I was trying to fight that emotion and, you know, getting get frustrated that it, that it would come up or uh, angry at myself uh, and tell myself uh, uh, not to feel that emotion. And then uh, the mental coach, he said, well, there is no way that you can fight uh, that emotion you just have to let it be there and you know that it's going to come so when whenever you feel that it's coming you have to embrace it and and feel that it's there and then have to distract yourself from that emotion so it would go away and uh, let your have your focus on on your game plan again so for me it was an easy tool but whenever i feel that would feel that emotion i would give myself a very easy exercise or easy uh, task to do, for example, the next 10 forehands, I have to hit it, um, uh, you know, cross court deep, or I would make a placement of the ball. Um, and I would do that, and I would have distracted myself from, you know, the emotion, and then I could focus back on my plan again. So, so those little exercises or tasks would help me to yeah get back on track basically I yeah. love that I feel like I might use that in my day-to-day life yeah and again it sounds so simple but yeah. sometimes that's what you need on a court when the pressure's on when when circumstances are not um, complete in your control and then sometimes you need just a simple task yeah absolutely it does it does seem simple but yeah. I, I think letting letting it happen is yeah. the is the most important part absolutely. we do tend to fight it yeah I want to switch gears just a little bit. Uh, Sven Gronefeld is going to be doing your welcome speech this weekend, and we can't wait to hear it. He coached you for the last four years of your career. You said that he talked about tennis and approached tennis in a way that you had never experienced before. Can you give us an example of one of those things or one of the ways that he tried to shape your tennis that was unusual to you? Um, Yes, uh, because I think he, he, he approached tennis in a way in a tactical way that I'd never experienced or um, approached it myself. And so he was analyzing the game for me and with me. So I would analyze my own game, but I also also would analyze my opponent's games with him. And he would talk about tennis in this, yeah, in, in, in tactical aspect. So ball placement, uh, the, the placement and approach to a ball, of myself, the position I would have on the court, but also in my chair, in combination with, for example, a serve. And he would, he would like lay it out as a puzzle. And well, he would, yeah, connect all those pieces and it would turn out eventually in winning a point, basically. Well, um, but, but then, yeah, laying it down, laying it out as a puzzle was new for me or was not a, a, a technique that I used before. And I think in a tactic uh, way, he, um, it's maybe a, a very confusing um, uh, way that I'm, or the way that I'm sharing it with you is maybe confusing, but <clears throat> also the, like I would say in, in wheelchair tennis, Tactics was not a very much spoken subject yet. Mm. And tactics in combination with 
what disability you have and what possibilities you have in a chair is um, a combination that was not spoken about. So he said, uh, whenever you return a point, uh, your uh, recovery is one of the, the weakest points in, in wheelchair tennis. So you have to make the point short to keep control. And then, yeah, uh, he, would, he would just tell me to each opponent, he would tell me where to place the ball in return, where to position myself in recovery, and then had only one or two shots in advance to make, it, to make sure that the point is short, and then, yeah, have control over yourself and your opponent. It's a maybe it's a confusing story, but well, I, what sticks out to me though is that that was a trailblazing moment in itself because perhaps the way that you played or the way that you were coached opened the door to other wheelchair tennis players to place a priority yeah. on that yeah. side of things. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And I read the story about how you approached Sven about coaching you. And of course, he's a, a quite a well-known coach. I think most people know him for coaching Maria Sharapova. Was, was that one of the most nervous moments oh God, of your career? Yes. yes. <laughs> you tell that story. Oh, yeah. Well, I was I just had won my uh, gold medal in Beijing uh, 2008. <clears throat> and I was thinking over, well, do I want to, you know, where do I want to go with my career? Do I want to take this next step? Do I st- still want to continue playing? Or do you want to you know, step down or, um, uh, and then I realized, well, I need some new input. I need some new, uh, fresh energy in my training uh, routine. And, um, and I, uh, wanted to switch coaches because I, the one that I worked with, I already worked with for 10 years. Mm-hmm. I want to switch coaches. And then the big question was, who am I going to ask? Because who is an expert in wheelchair tennis and, and who's not? Well, there's not a lot of tennis coaches that are experts in wheelchair tennis. And then I thought, well, maybe I do not need an expert in wheelchair tennis. I just need an expert in tennis. And Sven is Dutch as well. And uh, of course, is so like you said, uh, coached a lot of stars. And just I wanted to pop the question (laughs) to Sven, (laughs) uh, asking if he wanted to coach me. But I realized that he had no experience with this disability sport, with wheelchair tennis. He's, he's well, one of the, the biggest coaches out there. Um, and I was a little bit of, uh, you know, ashamed maybe um, asking him, uh, you know, to coach a wheelchair tennis player where there's no, you know, there's not a lot of fame or there's not a lot of big shows. There's not a lot of glitter or glamour, you know, around the wheelchair tennis tour. Uh, there's not a lot of money I can offer him. There's not... So, um, yeah, I just didn't know how to uh, ask the question. And so together with the national uh, coach of the Netherlands, I uh, went up to him and asked him if he would like to, or he was able uh, mm-hmm. to, uh, to help me. And then the, his reaction is just priceless. He said, well, I, he was honored that I asked him. And he said, well, this is going to widen or, or, or deepen my you know, horizon as a coach. And I have worked with the, with the most perfect bodies on the planet. And it's kind of easy to teach the perfect bodies how to hit a forehand. Right. But now I am, you're asking me to teach a wheelchair tennis player, which I don't have any 
knowledge about wheelchairs and disabilities and, and your body doesn't function as a normal body. So I don't know what I can teach you or what you're limited to. Um, but this is going to help me as a, as a coach, as, as, a, as a human being and as, you know, my skills as a coach. And the way that he, he said that, and I think that is priceless. And that, that's also why I think he is one of the best coaches out there. He was vulnerable at the time. He was open to learn. Um, and, and that's why, yeah, I think we connected really good. Yeah. That gives me the chills, actually. Yeah. That is a really neat moment. And was that something that you look back on? You said that you felt initially ashamed approaching him. Mm -hmm. Did that maybe change how you thought about interactions or putting yourself in vulnerable situations going forward? Well, I think this helped me putting wheelchair tennis more in the spotlights than I did before because he also said and told me that it's important to showcase what it is and to show the world and to tell about it and to share it with the people that love tennis, but also just the world to see what wheelchair tennis is about. And um, so I think it helped me. It gave me confidence to step forward and talk about it more and, and, my, and put myself more forward as, a, as an athlete, um, but also the sport as a whole. Yeah. Uh, you know, I want to ask you something, Esther, that, again, perhaps I should have put this earlier in the podcast, but something that able-bodied tennis players maybe don't think about are the particular physical challenges that you had to deal with uh, as a wheelchair tennis player. Can you tell us just a little bit about that? Um, just anything that w obviously you're, you're on the court in a wheelchair, that's a challenge in itself, mm -hmm. but physically uh, just in terms of keeping your body in good shape. Yeah, I think the, um, the, the parts that has been challenging for me was, for example, how to get my body uh, fit. And there wasn't a lot of expertise in nutrition, for example, as a wheelchair tennis player, because you don't use your, the half of, of your body. And how do you uh, get fit um, if it comes to nutrition, but also it comes to um, conditional training or uh, how do you become strong as an athlete, but don't overtrain yourself? Don't overtrain your upper body because you can't really give it a rest, basically. So the balance between work and rest was was uh, was challenging. And I think you know, sitting is not a very good position for a human being. So sitting and play sports and and um, play the the highest level of sports is very stressful for your body and your lower back um, and I think that's one of the weakest points for wheelchair tennis players is that your lower back is um, there's, there's a lot of tension on on that you've talked a few times today about how you didn't have anyone necessarily to look at and say that's what I want to be and you have provided that for so many athletes wheelchair athletes wheelchair wheelchair tennis players potential Olympians that you have your foundation which is I know does incredible work I look at Dede de Groot, of course, and she's Dutch as well. When you think about your impact and your legacy, how meaningful is that to you? Uh, yeah, it means a lot to me. I think it's the biggest compliment you can you can get if other people tell you that they um, have you as an example, or because of you, because so that I help them, you know, pick this pick a sport or pick tennis as a sport, and also maybe that I 
help them or to um, how do you say to flatten the path for them mm -hmm. uh, in, in in wheelchair tennis and so it's a compliment and I'm honored that I have that position and I also realize that there is a responsibility that you have as an athlete which is sometimes hard or heavy or stressful or um, but at the other hand I, th I don't think there's anything more beautiful than that role and that position so yeah I cherish that yeah, and to get on to maybe being able to put more of your time into your foundation, you had to eventually decide to retire. And you did that on a 470 match winning streak. Not many people get to retire at the top. You did that, how did you make the decision? I think it would, to all of us, maybe and maybe some of the people listening, it would be maybe hard to stop if things were going oh, so yeah. well. It was, it was probably one of the hardest decisions I'd ever make. Um, but um, yeah, I um, came, came home from London Paralympics 2012. I sat on my couch together with my boyfriend and, and just make this summary of my career, but also looking forward, what do I want to do? And where am I at as a person? And what are, what are the years to come? Where do I want to put my energy in? And then yeah, you're going to make a list of, of pros and cons. And, and Did you have an actual pro and con list? I did. And it changed a lot during those months. Because then, then yeah, it's also a very scary time. Because I've been playing wheelchair tennis for, I don't know, 19 years. And that's everything I did. And, and that's, that's, you know, all the people that I know are from wheelchair tennis or the sports world. And now I'm making maybe going to enter a new world and where are my talents there? What can I do? What do I like? Uh, will I ever get the same feeling and feel of joy in something else I'm going to do? And all those question marks, mm -hmm. that's just scary. Um, and leaving a world that you know so well and that you, that's, that's comfort. So, so stepping out uh, into another world was just scary. Um, but at the same time, very challenging and and it made me curious. And I also realized that, you know, I was 31 at that time. I had, I have a whole career path in front of me and I could use the, the fact that I had a winning streak and just won a gold medal for the benefits of my next career. And so, yeah, that was the time that I thought, well, this is just a moment of me retiring, step back. But I had a, a couple of times I doubted uh, after that, like, do I want to make a comeback? Did I stop too early? Um, what drove those feelings? Was it maybe seeing something on TV or wanting to go out and train? What made you potentially want to make those comebacks? Uh, well, first of all, the routine mm. and the, the, the life that you're living as an athlete and a very structured life. And, and it's nice. I mean, that you know how much hours of training you have to have that week or what you can and cannot eat or when you're home and when you're gone. Uh, it's all very structured right. and I missed the structure. Um, so, so that, and yeah, of course, when seeing matches on television and seeing wheelchair tennis develop as well. I mean, I never had the chance on playing Wimbledon in singles. So there were only a doubles event for wheelchair tennis when I was playing. And so in 2016, there was a first singles event. And I'm like, oh God, that's not on my list yet. Should I, <laughs> should I make a comeback just for right. that? So, so yeah, those, those kind of things would, would trigger me and would maybe make me doubt a little bit, but um, never, never had the intention on, you know, getting back in the, 
track of, of an athlete and, 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 and having your life, the whole, your whole life mm -hmm. focused on tennis. Um, well, and, and you know, now I'm a mom and I've a great job in sports and so I don't want to go back now anymore. I've just, yeah, it's you know, a different life and dis different um, focus points and, and uh, yeah, aspects. I want to talk about you being a mom in just a moment, but you also had a cancer battle in 2020. And I know there were several months of treatment that you had to go through. How helpful was your experience as an athlete in making your way through that? Very helpful, really tough I think. Time? Yeah. yeah. And of course, it's, it's something that I, I think and I, I feel that it was helpful. Um, but the, the way that I approached being sick and having to battle uh, cancer was something that looked like a, a tough training schedule. Um, I mean, there's a goal that I wanted to reach, and, and in tennis, this was a gold medal or number one. Or, and this in in this situation, it was to battle the the, the illness, and I wanted to, to get better. And the things that I needed to do for that was having those treatments, having those mm -hmm. chemotherapy, and and I just would cross off every single time I had one of those treatments, and re realizing that I would be a little bit closer to my goal mm -hmm. and that was that was helpful and because in the situation that you are sick there's there's this feeling that I hate is that you don't have any control over that uh, situation so you kind of have to put your trust into the experts into the doctors into and then and then just wait basically until you're better and then um, and so the the feeling of having a little bit of control by by going into this situation just like an athlete just gave me the feeling of control again yeah sure. and what has being a mom like you've you've done so many things uh, in your life Esther you've been retired now for 10 years but in that time foundation a book you you had your experience with cancer and you have a child so yeah. can you tell us about that part of your life yeah and and, and a very also very complicated part uh, that was because um, yeah we really wanted to have um, a child uh, but the doctors told me that I couldn't carry a baby myself so then there's this yeah sort of setback in emotional uh, uh, way um, and then you're trying to see what solutions are there is this adoption or is this surrogacy or is this what other options are there well there's not many um, and so eventually and it took us seven years basically which is maybe the most emotional and the hardest fight I'd ever had to fight but it took us seven years, and eventually we, we found a Canadian uh, a surrog surrogacy mom, and she carried our baby, so genetically it's ours. So in 2019, um, yeah, we, we went to Canada and, and, and got her. Yeah, well, it's the most wonderful, most intense, most precious moment in life, probably. And well, I mean, she's here with me. She's only three and a half now. Um, but to show her around and, and to have her with me, yeah, I, I love being a mom. And I love the fact that I can, can combine my work with motherhood and, and, and be home as well. And I never thought of myself, you know, enjoying being home so much. But it's just, uh, I, I love it. Yeah, is she like you, do you think, personality-wise? Uh, well, of course, she's a little bit of both. Yes. But she, she is, um, she's very stubborn, and I'm very stubborn. And, and That she, helped you, though, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. Run. It's okay. not a bad, uh, bad thing. And she's very, um, 
um, fanatic. Is that how you say it? It's, she's very, if she wants something, then she goes for it. So yeah, she's persistent. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so uh, I like to see that in her. Yes, it's it's nice. And I don't know where it's going to go. I'm I mean, sure. she's still young, but um, yeah. <laughs> well, fantastic that she's here with us in Newport this weekend. And, and that's what I want to finish talking about with you. Again, you've only just arrived, but you had your tour through the museum. I've heard that there are photos of you coming in through through the front doors and just the look on your face because it is such a special place. What has it been like so far? Impressive, overwhelming. Uh, never realized before how how big this is. Um, it's of course it's it's a, it's an honor to be inducted, um, but to realize how what tennis is and, and the history of tennis and the development of so many things. The, the, it's, it's the tennis balls, it's the records, it's the clothing, it's the equipment, it's the, the personalities. It's a, yeah, it's a, a wonderful and beautiful sport. And, and once you walk into the museum, you realize that it's, it's amazing what the development has been and that I am part of that uh, is unbelievable. I'm, you know, it, yeah, I'm struck by all those things. Well, listen, I feel like we could be here all day asking you questions. I, I know that I certainly could, and we appreciate you being with us on the Tennis Worthy Podcast. Thank you very much. Thanks for being here. Thanks. Wasn't that an incredibly moving interview? Esther Vergeer talking with Blair Henley. And she makes a point in her final answer that's worth emphasizing to all tennis fans. The Tennis Worthy podcast is listened to around the world, but if you're ever in the northeast of the United States, whether on vacation or business, do see if you can plan a trip to see the International Tennis Hall of Fame in person. Rhode Island may be one of the smallest states in the U.S., but it's beautiful, and picturesque Newport is the principal city, and the Hall of Fame is a remarkable center celebrating the history of tennis. Well worth a visit if you can. And Esther Vergeer, of course, will always have a place as one of its legends, not just in wheelchair tennis, but tennis in general. Our next podcast features another immensely likable female competitor, the former U.S. Open and Australian Open champion and Fed Cup winner Kim Clijsters. Join us for that via your preferred podcast platform or by going to TennisFame.com slash podcast, where you can find all the interviews we've posted so far. This is already the 14th. The Tennis Worthy Podcast is brought to you by the International Tennis Hall of Fame in association with the Tennis Radio Network. I'm Brett Haber. Thanks so much for listening. And don't forget to tell your friends about these interviews. We look forward to your company next time.